Okay, good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for coming. Why don't we get started? So today, it's my absolute uh, pleasure to introduce Dr. Neil Adhikari. Um, Dr. Adhikari visits us from the University of Toronto. He's a lecturer in the Interdepartmental Division of Critical Care at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center in Toronto. Um, he's also the, the founder and the chair of the American Thoracic Society Global Critical Care Working Group. Um, and uh, just a great, great, great guy. Really nice. He's Canadian, so why bother trying to break the stereotype, right? Um, so it's truly an honor to have uh, Dr. Adhikari come uh, to give us a, a talk on challenges and opportunities for sepsis research in resource-limited settings. Without further ado, Neil. Okay, uh, audio is working. Thanks very much for that introduction. Um, so, just make sure I know how this thing works. Good. Okay. Um, so, what I'm going to try to do over the next uh, while is um, um, I have no disclosures. Is really to uh, um, talk about the large number of gaps that exist in our understanding of. Um, a sepsis in resource limited settings in a variety of domains and then talk about some um, uh, new research that's being generated to try to close some of those knowledge gaps and some opportunities where I, I think this field can, can really move forward. Um, so I'm really going to talk about some of the issues in red. There's a, lots of questions you can ask about um, uh, gaps in sepsis knowledge and, he, and here are some big categories. Um, I'm going to spend a fair bit of time talking about epidemiology, partly because I sort of like that stuff, but also I think it's really important to, to frame the discussion of the importance of sepsis, which is something I think all intensivists care about a lot by having some understanding of how many patients are there out there with this condition anyway, and how does that compare to other conditions. And then I'll talk a little bit about um, um, some specific uh, topics related to uh, resusc resuscitation, um, antimicrobial management, and maybe some stuff around team and ICU organization and, uh, uh, and education right at the end. So I think it's important to frame this discussion. This is sort of an obvious point, I think, but people have actually studied just how much health research there is on uh, problems that uh, affect um, low and middle income countries, and it turns out uh, not a lot. So if you look at the proportion of all trials, the vast majority of trials address um, uh, non-communicable diseases, and only uh, a relatively smaller number of them address uh, communicable diseases or injuries. Um, and yet the burden of those diseases is, is fairly substantial. So um, if you look at um, uh, trials per disability-adjusted life years, it's clear that there's a vast number of trials in NCDs, and they clearly outnumber trials in these other areas, which, which, which also have a very high burden of disease. And if you look at where trials are recruiting from, um, the vast majority of them are recruiting from high-income countries. So this is just to frame the discussion to say, it, just considering randomized trials as, as one form of um, uh, as one form of study design that uh, guides treatment decisions and inferences about treatment. That there's there's really not that much data coming from um, even upper middle middle in income countries, let alone lower middle income and, and low income countries. And against this is like the, the fact that the number of publications, even from low-income countries, is growing, uh, particularly um, in, in, in um, epidemiology and public health. But to really understand where this is, sort of where this is starting from, you really have to look at the at the y-axis here, which is the absolute number of articles, right? 
So the absolute number of articles in, in these topics from South Africa in 2011 was, you know, just around 250 compared to many hundreds of thousands um, coming, from, uh, coming, or coming from higher income countries. So starting from a very low base of evidence generation in many of these areas, but, but it's growing. So with that, we'll turn to some considerations around um, sepsis, starting with, with how it's defined. So as everyone knows, the, the consensus definition of this changed in the last year. Um, and the, uh, to one where there's a suspicion of infection and a change in SOFA score of at least two. And I think the main point to, to make about this is that you need either a laboratory measurement or you need to do something to the patient um, for, four out of these six, uh, for four out of these six domains. It's really only when assessing um, uh, Glasgow Coma Scale um, and, and partly cardiovascular um, that you get, uh, uh, that th you can make some assessment of severity of illness without actually intervening with some form of life support or some, some form of therapy or doing a laboratory measurement. So the WHO's taken the position that uh, uh, a number of years ago in their district clinician manual, which is essentially a textbook of hospital-based care for adults and adolescents, um, that the sepsis definition should just be based on clinical grounds and shouldn't have any requirement for either interventions or, um, uh, or laboratory tests. And so what, what they've come up with is this suspected infection plus hypotension plus um, one or more of uh, tachycardia, tachypnea, or abnormal temperature. So how does this compare um, when you look at what's been proposed as the um, simple, simplified version to, uh, from sepsis 3, which is the quick sofa, which is meant to, not to figure out who has an infection, but is really meant to stratify patients that are clinically suspected in, of having an infection into, having, into those that are at high risk of death, which are those that have two or more of these criteria of altered mental status, tachypnea, and hypotension, um, versus those that have a lower risk of death. And this, the reason this is relevant is because this brings up another possible adaptation of, of uh, risk prediction for sepsis, which is, which is clearly much more practical in settings that, that, seal, that have a high burden of sepsis, potentially, and yet don't have very high laboratory capacity. And there's, there's plenty of, um, there's starting to emerge um, examples of this in, uh, in other syndrome definitions. So for example, the one recent example is the Berlin definition of ARDS, so from now five years ago. Um, you'll notice here that um, it's, it's got the requirement of chest imaging, um, and you, you need to have, um, uh, you need to have either a CT scan or a chest radiograph for this. And oxygenation, the severity of the oxygenation defect requires me measurement of a blood gas. So uh, recently, uh, in the last year, Beth Riviello, working with colleagues in Rwanda, validated a an alternative definition to this, um, which replaced the oxygenation requirement with a saturation to FiO2 ratio, which is much more practical to do, and uh, replaced um, chest radiography, which in their center was intermittently available with ultrasound. And this worked well to identify patients uh, with a similar clinical syndrome as, as was identified with uh, 
with, the, with the standard Berlin definition and is much more useful in identifying patients in settings where there may be a high burden of lung injury, but it's, it's completely unknown. So what about, uh, what about QSOFA? So there, I think in the next year we'll be seeing more and more um, uh, evaluations of this as a risk prediction tool, uh, both in high income and in low income settings. This is a, this was a research letter that was published recently from uh, patients in Gabon. Um, these investigators enrolled patients that had um, sort of were already pre-selected. Um, they had fever or hypothermia plus one other SIRS criterion, plus they got started on antimicrobial. So in other words, they had a clear clinical um, suspicion of infection. And that was sort of similar to the strategy that was used in the original QSOFA validation where patients were defined by having um, uh, clinical suspicion of infection by the um, giving of antimicrobial therapy and drawing of cultures. And interestingly, in this, in this group of patients, these were patients that uh, came to one particular hospital, the mortality, the overall mortality was quite low. And the test that they um, applied was, you know, the standard QSOFA, at least two um, points out of three. And the sensitivity here for predicting mortality was 87% and the specificity, 75% area under the ROC curve of 0.83. And you look at that and you say, oh, this seems you know, reasonable, reasonable sensitivity for, for predicting mortality. And about the same area under the AUCs you get for the vast majority of scoring systems in healthcare, like pretty much everything's between 0.75 and 0.9. And if it isn't, um, uh, something clearly went to miss uh, in your study. But when you actually look at the performance of this and calculate some likelihood ratios, really the positive likelihood ratio is pretty modest here. It's, it's just under four. The negative likelihood ratio just under 0.2. So these are, this, is the, this, this test, although it's pretty simple to use, only gives you pretty small changes in post-test probability compared to pre, which is not to say that it's not useful and not an improvement over um, either the WHO definition um, or uh, over um, clinician judgment, but just to, just to make the point that um, I think this needs a lot more uh, um, a lot more evaluations in a variety of different settings in order to, to demonstrate whether it's going to actually be useful and whether we really want to whether it will really be useful to the extent where patients that are QSOFA positive somehow get treated differently in these settings, and in, the, in particular in this one where the overall mortality rate was was quite low. This is a slide that uh, Chris Seymour presented at the uh, Toronto Critical Care, Canada Critical Care Forum meeting last year, to which I encourage all of you to attend in October. Um, it's now at the beginning of October, not at the end, so it's much more of a guarantee that there's no snow at that time in Toronto. And so this is um, a study that's going on now, the Sailor study, which I believe is being led by Owen West from, from University of Washington, which is meant to capture a very large number of patient encounters in multiple uh, low and middle income country settings where there's a, vide, a wide variety of uh, microbiologic diagnoses, not just bacterial um, infection, um, and to, to really see whether QSOFA works well as a, as a, as a prognostic tool over there. So this is, this is a very exciting study, and I think uh, 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 looking forward to seeing, seeing when some results from this uh, over the next couple of years. So we've established that the definition of sepsis is contentious, it changes. So 
given all of that, um, what do we know about uh, sepsis epidemiology? I think the first point to make is that is from a low resource setting point of view, the vast majority of sepsis uh, does not occur in the ICU because it can't occur in the ICU. And the reason it can't occur in the ICU is because there's so few ICUs and so few ICU beds. Um, we reviewed this, the, the peer-reviewed literature on ICU capacity from low-income countries a few years ago um, with a population from eligible countries of 850 million. And it really found that there was, there was not a lot of um, um, uh, published data describing um, critical care capacity. And what there was pointed to there being very few ICUs and very few ICU beds. So among these um, 43 published studies, they only described 36 ICUs in 31 cities. This is for a population of 850 million people. Um, these were mostly in capital cities, and some of them described their admission rates and, and ICU beds. So this is just talking about published data, of course. Lots of people with an ICU aren't going to write a paper about it. But uh, even so, it's, uh, it's, I think it speaks to the point that there's, just, there, there's almost certainly not a lot of ICU capacity. And we've seen this even in, um, in high-income settings where uh, uh, Hannah Wunsch's paper in this slide, I think, gets, gets showed a lot by people talking about ICU epidemiology, showing that the, uh, the uh, intensive care beds per 100,000 population um, when uh, mapped to hospital beds per 100,000 population really varies across, across hospitals. So the U.S. is sitting up on the top left here. Oh, I'm using my pointer, but it, so you can see it up there. Lots of ICU beds relative to hospital beds. And the UK is sort of sitting down here. Not very many beds um, for hospital ICU beds. Um, if you look at, um, if you look at uh, population-based data on, on ICU bed supply, and you use some of those same countries that I showed before, plus a couple of new ones, um, here's, here's a couple of you know, low-income countries. So, ICU beds per million, hospital beds per million. So Uganda and Eritrea, which happen to have national data, um, um, uh, sitting way down here at the bottom left. Uh, not a lot of hospital beds and not a lot of ICU beds. Um, and not surprisingly, healthcare expenditure in those places is, is pretty low. So here's Nepal up here, which is, uh, um, has, has more hospital beds, but again, not a lot of ICU beds. So in the... In the um, uh, considering the limited number of countries with national data on ICU supply, there's not a lot of ICU, so obviously you can't look at there if that's where you want to look at the patients with sepsis. Uh, we did a, um, um, a similar kind of study looking at um, deaths from acute, care, acute conditions, which would include sepsis and trauma and um, uh, um, cardiovascular type disease and so on. And then looked at, um, uh, these, this was in seven cities, and, and then looked at the acute care supply. So not just ICU beds, but ambulances and hospitals um, um, and uh, hospital beds that are capable of administering oxygen and fluid. And again, what you find here from the, the countries, from the, the two cities which were in lower middle income countries, so this one, Liaocheng in China and Kumasi in Ghana, um, GDP low and hospital resources per number of deaths from acute causes also extremely low, both at the hospital level and at, at the ICU level. So low resources, uh, not, not, this isn't a surprise, but you can demonstrate it in data that uh, um, uh, not a lot of ICU and even hospital resources in places with an expected high burden of sepsis. Um, 
So when you look at global surveys of, um, of, of sepsis um, or um, more recently with lung safe um, patients mechanically ventilated, low resource settings in general are pretty underrepresented. So the denominator of these studies typically looks pretty impressive. So this is, um, this is ICON from three years ago, 730 ICUs, 10,000 patients. There are only two low income countries there, Afghanistan and the um, DRC. Um, and even with, um, uh, even with only two low-income countries there, there is a sense that maybe hospital mortality is starting to go down in these critically ill patients in ICUs as, uh, uh, as GDP goes up. But it would almost certainly be, uh, this would almost certainly be much more impressive if they'd actually included, I think, um, or, or were able to include uh, countries with, with even lower, lower resources. So all that to say that um, um, unfortunately we don't really have population-based data on the scope of sepsis in resource-limited settings. So what has people tried to estimate this? Absolutely. It's, it's challenging to not only define sepsis but even to count how many cases there are for a variety of reasons which are listed here. Um, it's a syndrome which we are very used to dealing with clinically, but it's very hard to measure in administrative data. There's no blood test for this. Um, the, the incidence at least partly depends on whether you have other services. So if most of your deaths are occurring at home, then you might never get to the hospital with your septic episode, or you might die en route to the hospital. And when you're trying to figure out what the, um, what the mortality burden is from sepsis and to do, do comparisons from one jurisdiction to another, it's challenging because there's no globally validated risk, risk adjustment models. So how might, you, um, how might you attack this problem? Well, uh, one idea is to use clinical databases. Um, uh, just talking about some of the work going on from this center in, in Haiti, and you can imagine in a country that's geographically small, if you had complete coverage of all ICUs and even all hospitals with a common clinical database, in, in one geographic area or country, you could actually figure out population-based data on sepsis burden using that. But this is actually, um, th this is, I think, is growing, but in, from a low-income country point of view, there's really none that has uh, um, a national clinical database. Hospital discharge databases, these are great in high-income countries where all patients that are discharged from hospital are coded and you can run algorithms to figure out who has sepsis. Um, but again, doesn't exist uh, in low-income countries. So then we're left with the possibility of using um, estimates of deaths from death registries. So um, most countries will have some sort of death registry. It, it may not be physician-certified death, but, but someone will say the patient died of this cause. And you can look at this and try to figure out, in theory, how many of those deaths were from sepsis or something that looked like sepsis, such as an infection, and then back-calculate um, the incidence of sepsis using the case fatality rate. And the advantage of this is that in theory you could, you could use, um, yeah, you could include deaths at home because those would tend to, those might be certified as well. So those are all the good ways of, uh, the, those are all the sophisticated ways where you might get at the global sepsis uh, burden. A, a less sophisticated way is just to take what we know about sepsis in high income countries and multiply it out to low and middle income countries. And there's all sorts of problems with that. 
Um, it sort of assumes that the age and sex distribution is the, is the same. It assumes that the microbiology is the same, etc. But if you do that, you get um, a world sepsis number of between 15 and um, 19 million. And this is somewhat um, uh, backed up, as we'll see, from disease-specific causes. But just looking at that number, just because of population, the, the majority of those cases uh, are from low- and middle-income countries, right? And, and this is something you can, be, you can calculate with, uh, with a calculator. There's nothing sophisticated here. Where there is more data on specific causes that are associated with sepsis, such as meningitis and pneumonia, um, um, uh, so, which are easier to define because they're not syndromic or the syndromes are easier to clinically categorize. It's very clear that the majority of the mortality in purple here and the disability-adjusted life years are in um, low and in low middle-income countries, and there's really no dispute about that. So if, um, another crude estimate would be to look more systematically for studies of this, of uh, uh, population-based epidemiology, and we did that. And they're basically all from the green countries here, um, so all high-income countries. And when you take all of these estimates together and do um, a bit more sophisticated analysis than a back-of-the-envelope approach, you come up with data that the sepsis incidence is around about the same 30 million cases per annum because it turns out that the, um, that the couple of studies from, that are US-based are pretty influential and this is just multiplying out to the global population. And severe sepsis is about 20 million cases per annum and, and, and deaths about 5 million cases per annum. So pretty impressive. But at the same time, incredibly crude. Like it's pretty shocking that for something that we spend um, a lot of our time thinking about, we, we can't even identify um, how many cases there are of this on the global level. And to compare this to cardiovascular, there's much better data for, cardio for things like cardiovascular disease and cancers and so on, simply because they're much easier to recognize, typically. So this brings us to the global burden of disease, which um, I I'm certainly no expert in, but I, I will say that from their, their published data, and you'll notice every few years in the Lancet, they've got like an entire issue that's essentially the GBD issue. Um, with multiple papers. What they've, what they've been able to use is sort of multiple data sources to get at the reasons why people die. So they don't just use vital registration, um, which is, you know, I drop dead, someone certifies me, it goes off to the Vital Statistics Bureau, but they also use spe disease-specific registries. They, there are some use of verbal autopsy, which is a technique where you go and visit a household and you ask whether anyone's died, and if someone has died, you try to figure out why they died using a sort of a semi-structured interview approach that gets coded and then rated by, um, uh, by typically a couple of clinician reviewers. And then there's some, there's some miscellaneous um, data sources as well. Interestingly, even for GBD, which generates worldwide estimates, and so you can look up you know, the number of deaths due to, um, I don't know, firearms in Angola if you want, um, the, the data density is really quite strikingly dominant in uh, high and upper middle income countries. So high in, um, uh, high in North America, pretty high in, in South America, you know, reasonable in Europe and, uh, um, and Russia, very high in China. And actually there's, a, there's, actually, there's, there's actually more data sources available from China than there are either in Canada or the US because they've got subnational data from China, so provincial data from China. 
fair bit in Australia, um, sort of spotty in, in, uh, in Asia over here, and very, very poor, uh, very poor data coverage um, uh, from Africa. So they take all of this data, it goes into a very complex algorithm, um, which here's the cause of death database over here, coming from all of these uh, various sources. And um, you, with a fair bit of statistical modeling, um, you end up getting mortality and years of life lost for um, a, whole, a whole variety of causes of death. And here's an example of a nice, um, uh, a nice plot that they produced from the 2015, so deaths in Sub-Saharan Sub Africa, all ages, both, both, uh, both sexes, 2013. Here's HIV, which is pretty dominant. Um, lower respiratory tract infections and diarrheal illness over there. Malaria, still pretty important. Tuberculosis. So where's sepsis in this? Well, it only appears in one place, and that's uh, neonatal sepsis. And um, um, e even though the mechanism of death for many of these patients with HIV, TB, meningitis, etc., might well have been a septic death. So it looks like there's, there's no sepsis except in some very unfortunate neonates, but in fact, it's, it's, it's because the whole concept here is geared towards underlying causes of death and not what you actually treat clinically. So it makes it very hard to, um, uh, to, to advocate for both for uh, funding and, and studies and, and interventions and so on to improve what we see clinically in uh, anyone who's worked in a lower-air uh, resource setting, which is a lot of death from sepsis. So, okay, how does GBD see this problem? So there's, this, there's a technical term which they call garbage codes. And um, so th these are codes for, that are, uh, for which deaths are assigned that cannot or should not be considered as the underlying cause. So, for example, heart failure, um, senility, and then septicemia, so a very old term, is sitting over there. So w one of the challenges for sure is, is, trying, to, um, uh, is, is trying to work with GBD, and, and some folks are doing that, Derek Angus and uh, Tex Kassoon. Um, uh, in Vancouver, among others, to try to do some secondary analyses of the GBD data to see if we can come up with um, a more robust um, a global and country-specific uh, estimates of sepsis mortality. And the reason it's important to do is because we cannot answer basic questions, which you can not using GBD, but using um, administrative data in high-income countries, such as this graph here from... Um, from uh, from Australia showing that mortality over time seems to be going down from severe sepsis. And this has been pretty controversial. Maybe this is all to do with changes in definitions of sepsis, but maybe it's also because we're starting to take this more seriously. Um, we're resuscitating people sooner and we're giving them antibiotics sooner, et cetera. We're just taking better general care of sick patients. And could this be happening in low and middle income countries? Well, sure it can. Um, there's some data that suggests that actually deaths from malaria is actually going down, right? And that's prob that this probably doesn't have, this may not have much to do with anti-malarial therapy, it may have to do with bed nets and preventive type measures. But interestingly, with the decrease in malarial deaths, there's actually been a positive side effect on, on bacteremia. So this is, this is data showing, um, I believe this is from Kenya, showing admissions with m malaria, which is going down dramatically over time. That's in the red here. 
but then patients with admissions to hospital with bacteremia also going down over the same period. So th there, there is actually reason to say, to suspect that maybe sepsis outcomes are actually improving globally, but we, we can only answer that or speculate on that indirectly at this point in time, and it's probably pretty important to know. So can we do any better than this? So I'll just, I'll just uh, finish this particular section by talking about a very interesting study which is led by um, Anna Dare, who's a general surgery resident and uh, a PhD health services researcher in Toronto, who's worked with Prabhat Jha in the Million Death Study in India, which, and what this study was, was a nationally representative household survey um, where they used verbal autopsy um, and they, they picked households on the basis of um, um, uh, population density and so on, so they'd be able to, to multiply out to the population by knowing the sampling frame from which they pick these households to, to inquire about. And what she did in this particular study was look at deaths from, that could be reasonably um, uh, concluded to be due to acute surgical problems, so acute abdominal uh, conditions, and looked at, um, uh, first of all, how prevalent that was as, as, a, as a problem um, in India at the, at the district level, and what you can see here uh, pretty typically, uh, not just with surgical conditions, but with other conditions too, is that there's, um, there's a west to east gradient with, with fewer deaths on the west in general and, and way more on the east. Um, and also, interestingly, she was able to show here that the, um, the higher mortality clusters, so these are um, geographic clusters where there's a high mortality due to acute surgical conditions, these, these particular clusters had a much had a higher distance to um, high level, higher level acute care hospitals compared to, uh, to lower mortality clusters over here, um, which is, it's actually not so impressive in this particular, the way it's displayed in this figure, but it, it, the graphic was a lot better than the forest plot with the odds ratios, which are truly impressive. Um, so, but this actually led to, this is, leads to a direct um, implication for health planners in India around trying to, around one possible intervention, which is, which is to, um, uh, which is to expand coverage of uh, hospitals able to provide higher level of care, or to expand the currently available hospitals which don't provide as much care and, and upgrade them so they can provide acute surgical care. So we're doing the same kind of project now, I should say, I say we, but it's really Anna who's doing most of this work, um, around, um, around sepsis deaths. And it's very problematic for all the reasons mentioned, like how do you know whether someone's died of sepsis? Um, so we went through um, adjudication exercise with a long list of ICD codes and sort of judged which ones we would say were sepsis or not. And we hope to have some uh, results from this um, relatively soon. And the advantage, the advantage of this approach is all to do with the design of the study and the way the data were collected. Um, because it was planned and representative household sampling, uh, it really allows you to make powerful influences, at least around the number of deaths. Not around the number of cases, that's a bit of a, that's a, bit of a guess from back, back calculating from case fatality but it's pretty robust on, on number of deaths. So just on the epidemiologic front, I mean, I think, I, I think this, this field will, what it needs to, to get uh, more reliable data just on basic epi questions um, is either more studies such as the million death study, which I think are, take a lot of money planning, 
um, and may not be practical to do in a lot of places. But certainly, incorporating sepsis into global burden of disease estimates, I think, is vitally important, and I hope that happens. Other approaches, which I'll just mention briefly, um, uh, are these period prevalence studies, which are coming up now in Sprint Series 1. So this is, a, this is a study which is being led by um, Steve Webb and others from Australia, which is looking over a relatively fixed period of time of two to four weeks, all the number of, of ICU cases that have severe acute respiratory infection that meet that definition. And so far, that sounds like exactly like ICON or any one of these other large studies, except that in places where we're able to get data on the at-risk denominator, then we're able to actually get population-level estimates of the burden of disease, and that's what's important to get. It's, it's much more valuable to say there's X cases per 10,000 patients of severe acute respiratory infection in this particular area, and over there in China, there's way more cases than it is to say, well, there's 10 cases here and 100 cases over there. So this, I think, is a potentially, potentially valuable approach. Probably won't get you 100% global coverage, but uh, uh, it, um, probably will be better than what we currently have. And I just want to mention this other project, which is David Wallace at, uh, uh, in Pittsburgh is leading, which is a very, very cool mapping tool. Um, sort of, um, I think in its ultimate form will be a sort of a crowdsourced mapping tool where, ha where hospitals and people working in hospitals will be able to enter geolocated data about their hospital and then enter epidemiologic cases, uh, epidemiologic data about uh, cases that they're seeing of sepsis or severe acute respiratory infection or other things. And again, the, the point about this is that with, with, uh, with wide geographic coverage, you will then get population-based data, not, not using administrative data, but using actual clinical uh, clinicians' um, experience in what they enter in order to be able to generate population-based data. This has a lot of appeal because, um, uh, because it's really relying on the community of clinicians in, in, order, to, in order to generate this. So I'm going to shift gears. Um, talk a little bit about um, antimicrobial resistance issues and then a little bit about some, some areas of research and treatment. Um, so <clears throat> resistance is a problem. Just, to, just before getting to that, just to make the point about microbiology, I already said this, but the, really the, the microbiology of patients that get sepsis and septic shock, quite different between high-income countries and low-income countries, um, depending on the geography, so a lot more um, uh, viral, tuberculous, um, parasitic, unusual bacteria, and so on, and diseases that are seen in, in Asia and Africa. <coughs> and you can see this when, even when looking at um, um, systematic reviews of studies of bloodstream infection, and bloodstream infection much easier to sort of say, well, this person has a bloodstream infection because the blood culture is positive, as opposed to saying someone has sepsis. So even when you do these bloodstream infection type studies, you find that the pathogens in Africa, which, you know, a lot of salmonella um, that, that wouldn't be seen here, a lot of patients that are HIV positive, way more so than would be seen in, in most other places. So the, the microbiology is completely different. It probably affects the epidemiology. It might even affect the response to some of the treatments that we, that we might give in resuscitation. And just to make the point that from a sepsis point of view, it, it, looking at blood cultures is a pretty inadequate way of studying it just because so few patients 
in these settings have positive, have positive blood cultures, even though they're, they meet the definition of severe febrile illness. So with, with that as a background, uh, turning to antimicrobial resistance, the reason I think this is, as we, as we think about research opportunities in sepsis, as intensive as we probably think a lot about resuscitation and um, fluid management and early antibiotics and so on, but this is potentially going to um, change the landscape um, uh, of what we're able to do for patients um, unless something dramatically changes in the, next, uh, in the next number of years. So global impact of this particular uh, carbapenemase is, is relatively modest in North America now, but pretty large in, in, um, in South America and, and parts of Asia. And projecting out to um, uh, 2050, this particular uh, commissioned review from the UK suggested that there, if, if nothing changed in terms of antibiotic development, that there'd be 10 million deaths per annum that you could attribute to antibiotic resistance by 2050, about equally split between Asia and Africa, and then a smattering of, of other deaths in Europe and North America and so on. And the, um, there's a few ways to think about this. One is that it's, well, it's a huge problem, and what are we going to do in the ICU about this? But, and from a huge problem point of view, I think a, uh, a lot of what's driving this is the, is the difference between who's currently using antibiotics but who's starting to use them more and more. So this is showing that the current antibiotic usage is, is quite high and totally predominant in high-income countries. But the growth in antibiotic usage is actually much higher in Asia, Africa, Latin America and actually going down in uh, Europe and, and North America, at least on, this is all inpatient and outpatient antibiotics. So the, the challenges of, of resistance in low and middle income countries, and uh, um, we'll get to the, how this is relevant to the ICUs, is, is one that there's a, there's a lot higher incidence of uh, infection, that's almost certainly true. There's a higher prevalence of resistant bacteria the growth in antibiotics is prescribing is, is increasing. Um, a lot of antibiotics that are given may in fact be, be counterfeit um, um, and there's a general lack of prescription control so you can sort of get any antibiotic that you want for either yourself or for your relative. And within hospitals in general outside of the operating theater there's um, the, the infection prevention control is often quite um, is often um, um, uh, sort of not that well resourced um, and somewhat ineffective. And the laboratory capacity to, to document resistance patterns in patients that are clearly septic is very limited. So even if you wanted to step down to a to a, from a broad spectrum antibiotic to something that's narrower, which is a sort of a core concept of antimicrobial stewardship, how can you do that when you don't have uh, the ability to measure microbiologic data? So, one way to think about this is, well, you know, we're not going to solve this. What we need is better sanitation. And it's true that if, that if you look at, um, if you look at, um, um, if, if you look at, as GDP per capita goes up, I'm just showing you that life expectancy goes up, but, but access to sanitation also decreases, increases considerably with that, and antibiotic consumption actually goes down. So that's fine. So, but we, we are not, we're not going to, be able to deal with that. We're also not going to be able to deal with um, antibiotic exposures outpatients. So what can we do that's practical in the ICU? The reason I think this is important is because 
so many patients um, in the ICU are on antibiotics, and they're all next to each other. And they're typically not in, in, uh, in private rooms. So not only is the antibiotic pressure the highest there, but the, it's, it's the perfect environment for cross-contamination and, and transmission of resistance. And these are some potential approaches that um, sort of we put together sort of as a concept slide, thinking about a grant that we might put in for this um, on different approaches you might take um, uh, around infection control, general infection control measures, some patient uh, level interventions, some antibiotic interventions, some diagnostic interventions around strengthening microbiology. And one of the interesting things about this is that um, um, it sort of leads to some discussion as how you might actually design studies to, to figure out which of these things works. So here's an example of a study that was, uh, um, is typical of the field, um, and uh, which is before-after study in, in Thailand, um, uh, where they um, implemented um, education around antimicrobial usage and stewardship in the context of a functioning microlab. Micro and there, they found things that, that have been seen elsewhere in, in high-income countries, so there was antibiotic use was more appropriate, and resistance went down. So how do we know that this is the right approach versus any of the others that I've listed, or the most, or the most efficient? So usually when you think about study designs, we're, we're taught to think that we go from our efficacy studies, we try to prove whether something works under very controlled conditions, then we go to effectiveness studies, does it work on a broader scale, multiple centers, and then maybe after that we might, we might do some implementation research. So we, might, you know, we figured out 15 years ago that low tidal volume is life-saving, but we're not quite sure how to implement it, so we're going to do some implementation research. This, this paradigm may not work so well where we're trying to figure out both how to implement something and whether it works. And so it, 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 it brings to, to, to mind the possibility of considering some hybrid designs where the emphasis might be either on more on effectiveness or it might be more to the implementation end, but we're still interested in measuring um, clinical effects because maybe when you implement uh, an IPC intervention in a, low, uh, in a low resource setting, there are some unexpected downsides to it, and so you want to measure a variety of effects to see if it also has effectiveness. But I think some creativity in study design um, is going to be required if we're if, to tackle this particular problem of antimicrobial resistance. The other problem is, is, that, is that that slide showed about 10 different possible approaches. And at least for individual patient randomized trials, this des design has recently been proposed. So it's, it's sort of a continuously running trial, a platform, if you will, on which interventions are sequentially rolled out. Um, uh, so the, the platform trial, in theory, runs forever. And there, there's, there's uh, um, a platform trial of pneumonia that's been funded now in Europe and in, um, uh, and in Australia to look at uh, a, a couple of antibiotic choices, steroids versus no steroids. And I think the third arm was um, different approaches to PEEP management in patients that are mechanically ventilated. And the, this kind of um, design is important to think about because we don't expect that after completing a trial about infection prevention and control, for example, 
that the question, all questions on antimicrobial resistance are answered. We have to go on answering the next questions. So from a health system point of view, this is much more efficient. We can start with our IPC intervention, and then we can move on to chlorhexidine, and then we can move on to stewardship or something like that, all in a sort of continuous sort of um, platform of centers that are interested in learning the best approaches to decrease uh, uh, antimicrobial resistance. So this particular problem, which I, th I think is, is, is a, a huge area of opportunity for research, um, is also an opportunity for some advancements in methodologic thinking about trial design that I think are going to be, uh, that are going to be quite compelling. Whether this is going to work for a cluster trial, so when you randomize ICUs rather than patients, I think is yet to be worked out, but, um, um, but it's something that I, I is sort of being actively, um, actively look, uh, investigated now. And the last thing I want to talk about is some opportunities for research and treatment. Um, I mean, the bad news is this was 2012. This was a, a summary paper on recommendations for sepsis care in low and resource settings. Um, not a lot of high quality evidence uh, to justify these very reasonable recommendations. And here we are in um, uh, 2017, and uh, this paper just came out uh, a few weeks ago. And I've just taken, clipped the, the one table they have on fluids where really not much has, cha has, has much has changed. They make the point that for fluids that some different types of, of sepsis-like syndromes might behave differently, like malaria and dengue. Um, and they, they make the point that um, um, uh, um, there's not a lot of data to guide how much fluid you should give, and there's a real risk of giving either too much or too little. I, I mean, really, it, 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 you know, it, it's somewhat unsatisfying. So if you look more granularly, this is a paper that's um, um, in press at ICM. This was meant to be a sort of evidence-informed and uh, grade, graded by the grade uh, system review of recommendations that could apply to sepsis care in low and middle income countries. And these were the topics that sort of we considered, um, uh, sedation and relaxants obviously for patients that are ventilated. And the, no, absolutely not one of the recommendations was informed by any trial that had been conducted in, in a lower, primarily in a lower middle income country, which is a bit, which is pretty unfortunate. So you end up being in the situation where these these recommendations essentially restate the surviving sepsis campaign recommendations uh, with some maybe some expert opinion, which is pretty, pretty unsatisfying. There's certainly been a fair bit of descriptive work to describe what's actually happening. I just wanted to highlight um, work from here that just came out um, uh, in the last several months um, uh, from a hospital in, in Port-au-Prince in Haiti where um, I think Fred spent the better part of a year collecting data on, on patients with sepsis and severe sepsis and looking at processes of care and outcomes. And there's a few interesting aspects to this, to this work, which I think um, um, uh, would definitely inform the design of subsequent interventional studies. One is that there are some patients that met the severe sepsis definition that actually oops, went home from the hospital directly. Among those admitted, the mortality was, was, was pretty high, and we'll see it was similar to an African cohort that I'll refer to momentarily. Um, 
Median volume of fluid, extremely low in the, in, the first, uh, in the first day, but the time to give any kind of fluid pretty fast. And interestingly, about a fifth of patients are getting hypo hypotonic fluids. Antibiotic administration, um, even within the first 24 hours, only about half of patients had received antibiotics. And in a recurrent theme, I think that we see from, from settings where there's limited antibiotic availability and you never know what you're going to have, a rather large number of combinations of antibiotics were administered to these sick patients. Probably not because that was clinician choice, but probably directed by what's available. This is a now quite old study from Uganda from uh, Shevin Jacob and colleagues with, with pretty much similar findings. Um, uh, HIV prevalence quite high here. It was measured in most patients. Hospital mortality high. And these are patients with sepsis rather than um, uh, these are patients with sepsis, but they, because of the hypotension, wouldn't meet the severe uh, criterion. Um, relatively small amounts of intravenous fluids given, and um, uh, uh, timing again, most patients got some fluid pretty quickly. And here, 52 antibiotic regimens. So uh, there's been a fair number of descriptive work, and a lot of it's pretty concordant around um, a generally conservative approach to volume management and a wide variety of antimicrobials that are used. If we um, look at randomized trials from, from these settings around just the fluid issue, um, there have been a, a couple. This one um, uh, looking at fluid resuscitation in African children, showing that there's a higher mortality with fluid boluses administered. Someone said that, that really the main interpretation of this study is that this is a late resuscitation study because of the time to presentation to hospital. And, and really the point here is that if, when patients are coming in very late, it's not the time to be aggressive with, with volume. This is another study in adults um, from Zambia. Um, uh, ben Andrews is the first author here. Um, showing, uh, testing a fairly simplified sepsis resuscitation protocol, which is meant to reliably give a higher volume of fluid. And, um, in adults with a high degree, a high prevalence of HIV. And again, mortality very high, and the trial was stopped early in patients with respiratory distress at admission. So the study reliably gave patients more fluid, but that, that may not have been the right thing to do in this setting, um, even though this technically didn't meet a, their um, stopping rule criterion. They sort of felt compelled to stop, and it seems pretty reasonable when you look at this. Uh, to do so again, maybe this is uh, maybe this is uh, this was a trial of, del of, del of fluids in patients that presented late to hospital. So maybe there's a better way of of um, of, um, uh, of administering fluid, and maybe we should be using ultrasound. I, just, I wanted to highlight this work because I, th I think I, this is a real this was a letter, but uh, it's a very compelling title. Um, and uh, I, th I personally think it's going to be used in a lot of slides, people's slides. And then here was, this, so this is from, uh, from this group here, uh, point of care ultrasound in a resource constrained constra constra setting also in, in Haiti. And the beauty about this was this telemedicine intervention on the training side which was that it completely circumvented expensive infra infrastructure and achieved excellent training of non-physician providers um, to a very high quality um, using entirely commercially available software in a 4G network. And so maybe this is sort of proof of concept, just showing that you can train people, but maybe, maybe in future trials this, this type of approach 
uh, is the more intelligent way to, to guide fluid resuscitation as opposed to um, algorithms, based on, algorithms based on vital signs alone. I'm at risk of going over time, so I'm just going to stop over here. Um, this, this is a trial that I'm helping with on the design and scientific advisory end, but this is sort of Feast for Adults, um, led by Shevin Jacob um, from Washington and, and Uganda, where really what, what we're trying to do is to compare usual care to one of four possible fluid resuscitation algorithms in adults that meet the WHO sepsis uh, definition. So one is the IMAI approach. This is based on this book that I referred to earlier. So some fluid and then if the patient's still hypotensive, start dopamine. The second approach is more fluid avid and the third approach is less fluid and start dopamine sooner. And um, this trial is not funded at all yet and may not be. It's, it's under review right now. But the main reason I wanted to talk about it was, again, it was an interesting, it's an interesting question clinically, but it also led to the opportunities to do some really cool thinking about the design of the study. And the main thing here was that no one wanted to continue to 2,500 patients and find out that usual care sucked, right? Wouldn't it be nice to drop, and I'm saying that usual care is going to suck, but actually maybe usual care is going to turn out to be the winner, right? I, I don't know. So we want to be able to drop poorly performing arms sooner. So through, um, through a, a fair number of work simulating various scenarios, and I'm, I'm happy to talk about this later with anyone who's interested, um, we came up with this approach which, which hadn't, hadn't really been used before as a sort of multi-arm, multi-stage to the analysis where we're able to run simulations of these various scenarios where you have usual care, where, where you want to be able to drop it soon, but it's not really the control arm because it, it might actually come out on top. But what you really want to do is to drop poorly performing arms soon. And we were able to do this fairly efficiently in a trial of 2,500 patients, which sounds like a lot, but if you didn't have this approach to interim analysis, it would require a lot more patients to go uh, directly to conclusion. So we'll see whether this, whether reviewers buy this approach, which has been modified somewhat for the grant, um, and whether it's funded. And this, of course, doesn't leave out the actual practicalities of how this trial is going to be conducted, which is going to be extremely challenging. So I think I'll, I'll end here just to say that there's a lot of I think totally fascinating and unanswered questions about all aspects of sepsis in, uh, in resource constrained settings. Everything from the epidemiology, which I think some people may say is totally dry and uninteresting, but which is crucial to understand the scope of the problem and to advocate for it. Um, and I, I think rigorous, rigorous studies can in fact be designed. Um, and um, whether they can be funded is, is another thing. But there's, they certainly can be designed, and I think there's opportunities for methodologic innovation um, in the design of the studies, and probably in the approaches to resuscitation. Um, I, I think, I think a, a, a proof of concept randomized trial using um, an ultrasound-based resuscitation algorithm, for example, in one of these settings would be would be of, of huge interest um, and would really bypass a lot of sepsis re resuscitation research in high-income countries if that approach could be shown to be effective compared to usual care. And then I'll end off by saying that it's, um, I'm talking here as someone who lives in a high-income country who does some work in Ethiopia, but obviously it's so crucial to engage our local um, 
in-country investigators and collaborators in this work and really make it uh, completely bi-directional in terms of our mutual, um, uh, mutual learning, uh, mutual engagement in research, and mutual care of patients. And I think I'll end there, and I apologize for being a bit slow. Neil, so one, one question if you don't mind. So um, thanks for the great talk, by the way. How do you reconcile the, the evidence that's out there from LMICs, which tends to be from you know, the large referral hospitals, national referral hospitals of that particular country, with the kind of reality on the ground at the district level, which is where I would argue most of the septic patients yep. are there. And there's, there's a discrepancy between the resources that are available in that resource-limited setting and yeah, so there's a gradient even within these places for sure, right? Which is, and to bring up that point, this, this proposed trial um, uh, of Shevin Jacobs is actually going to be conducted in regional hospitals, not in sort of the main academic center, right? Recognizing that most patients are not referred to, to, to Malago uh, in Kampala. Most patients are treated locally, and, that, and that's where um, uh, most of the treatment has to happen. Even before that, there's no question that, like, you know, Patients may get referred from district health centers, sort of a sub-regional referral hospital level, quite late, right? And and um, and that's hugely problematic, right? And and also, I think that huge numbers of patients die at home. They they just there's no interaction with the medical system whatsoever, right? So when you think about the effect of your intervention, right? I I I think it's completely important to recognize that it's, it, it can only possibly work in people that come to a health facility. And they may actually come to something which, which even if, you know, even if like modest fluids and dopamine turns out to be good, right? It's a huge implementation problem, right? Uh, it, it, you know, even if that turns out to be good in a study, right? So I think I, t I agree that I think it's a more general problem. Things that, things that you, this is the kind of environment you're dealing with where so much illness is, 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 um, is not medically managed at all, really, right? Um, um, and, and probably that's less true with acute illness, but yeah, whatever you do, the, it, it has to be seen as being in a chain of care, I think, from the smallest district sort of clinic to, um, um, to regional centers to, to the Main, main teaching center. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Thank you.